Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Ray Grant. And one of the reasons I'm really happy to have Ray on is when we typically think about the Olympic Games, we think about the competitions and the athletes, but there's an entire other Olympiad going on, the Cultural Olympiad, and Ray was instrumental in bringing that uh, to Salt Lake 2002. And so, Ray, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I am very well, thank you. And thank you for uh, having me. It's not lost on me that uh, even putting together this Cultural Olympiad was a team effort. And it's one of the things, I think, quite honestly, that separated our games from many others. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. It looks like you're joining us from a lovely room in your home. Where is home? So uh, home since the games uh, has been a sugar house right here in Salt Lake City. Um, My wife and I, and at the time, our less than one-year-old son, moved out here on the July 4th weekend of 1998, and we stayed uh, ever since. So you decided to just settle down here and put roots here in uh, good old Salt Lake City. Indeed, we, we, we did. Following the games, I became the executive director of Robert Redford Sundance Resort. And from there, started a consulting practice in um, organizing uh, cultural uh, activities for uh, various organizations. And, uh, and, and we've stayed and raised our children here and uh, tried in our own small way to contribute to the community. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those community contributions? What are you involved with currently? So uh, a very exciting project uh, in uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's called Bishop's Lodge. It's an iconic lodge that dates from the 1920s. And it's closed now under construction due to open in the spring of next year. And we're hoping to uh, open it up as a specialized resort for people who are specifically interested, much like we've done with with the Olympics, of this merger of nature, of the environment, of sport, uh, as well as arts and culture. That sounds really interesting, but has COVID impacted the planning for this particular endeavor? Oh, no, no question about it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying that many people, as you began your fine introduction, um, think about the Olympics as nothing more than sport. But actually, the Olympic Games uh, began as cultural celebrations um, going back all the way to 776 B.C. Uh, there's a remarkable story. I commissioned a series of essays during the Games and the um, University of um, uh, Philadelphia museums uh, did this remarkable history, and it suggested, Christian, um, that uh, way back in 776 BC, the earliest known text in the entire Greek world was a hexameter poem that was found etched into the shoulder of a terracotta vase. And that vase was found buried in an Athenian grave in 776 BC, and it had an inscription on it. And that inscription said, he who dances most nimbly of all, take this, the vase, as your prize. That first medal for the Olympics was a cultural medal for someone who participated in poetry.
that is really super interesting story. I appreciate you sharing that and really bringing the games into a historical context. Now, we're talking about history, but it's not all the way back to 776 BC. We're talking about uh, maybe 20 years ago here, the Salt Lake 2002 games on our humble little podcast. And, you know, why don't you tell us what you were doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, what your background was, what you were doing? Were you in this arts and entertainment industry? And then how you found yourself in 1998? here in Salt Lake City? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the question. Uh, I was very much involved in, in the arts. I was trained as a musician and a music educator. I hold the terminal degree in arts administration from uh, New York University. And I was actually working as a Walt Disney Imagineer when I was approached by a group of cultural leaders who formed a committee here. Um, and uh, there was an opening for the artistic director for the Cultural Olympiad and the Olympic Arts Festival. And uh, long story short, was first uh, hired by Frank Jocklick, who was the chairman at the time. And, um, and soon after my arrival in uh, 1998, when uh, Mitt Romney uh, took over as the CEO of the games and Frazier as his right hand uh, person, um, they kept me on. I was one of the few um, cultural uh, advisors in the history of the games to report directly to the CEO. A lot of times the cultural program is considered a quaint amenity. In our, our case, it was an essential part of the, uh, the, the Olympic Games. And, uh, and I think we made our impact. It became the first games since 1896 to be completely privately funded. Uh, when you ask about stories, one of the uh, one of the remarkable stories is one of my early days meeting Mitt was when he brought me into his office. He relates this in his book, and he said, "Ray, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is you could have a cultural program." And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's already built into the contract. That shouldn't even be an issue. And he says, "The bad news is you have to raise all of the money for it." So we went on to raise about, um, I'd say about $35 million for uh, 60 events and over 400,000 world visitors and Utahns participated in them. Okay, so I have to ask you, what goes through your mind when he says you have to raise all the funds? Did you feel like, okay, I've got a high degree of confidence that I can do this or I wasn't really expecting that. Now I've got to put together a game plan. How am I possibly going to raise all the funds that are needed to deliver a really compelling cultural Olympiad and arts festival? So, so Christian, two things stood out to me. Um, I had raised quite a bit of money in the arts in New York City. Um, but the things that stood out to me were that more pianos, harps, and violins were sold per capita in Utah and specifically in Salt Lake City than any other place in the United States. And the piano dealer, the Steinway piano dealer, uh, Dane's Piano in Salt Lake City, was the largest piano dealer west of 57th Street in New York City. I had also recognized that there's six professional dance companies. There was a professional um, symphony orchestra, opera, and the like. So one of the important challenges, yet it was a great opportunity, was to make sure that when I came in, I was going to add to the philanthropy of the community, not take away from it. 
And it turned out that there were some very, very important leadership gifts right from the get-go, Spence Eccles, Rick Lawson, and others who made major contributions, Ambassador John Price. I was in Mitt's office when he took out his checkbook and he says, okay, I'm not going to give any money to your deficit fund if you think there's going to be one. I'm going to give money to be with the beautiful people. And he wrote a million-dollar check to the Cultural Olympiad. Wow. Well, there's a mic drop moment right there. <laughs> Mitt uh, literally put his money where his mouth is, right? Um, yes. What, a, what and, an incredible story. And, and John Price and the Eccles family and, and many others, because I think they believe and they continue to recognize that culture and heritage and, um, and uh, uh, the way in which we could celebrate how Utah participates in the arts to a world audience was important to them. So you've done a very, very nice job of highlighting how important arts and culture is here to the community locally, and you've figured out a way to fund this program. How did you compose the program? What was the strategy behind what was the vision behind actually developing the Cultural Olympiad itself, what it was going to look like? It's a terrific question. Um, we formed a group of cultural leaders and spent many hours kind of crafting uh, what the focus of this cultural program uh, could be. It could have been international. It could have been local. It could have been regional. And we focused basically on two or three things. One is we knew right from the start we were going to highlight America's great contribution to the arts. Secondly, we were going to celebrate Utah and its heritage. And thirdly, we were going to make a very important celebration to the Native American communities that were indigenous to what we now call Utah. Now, when we think of the Olympic Games, we typically think of 17 days of competition for the Olympic Games and then a shorter number of days for the Paralympic Games. Uh, but when it comes to arts and culture, you can span beyond those those time periods. So for you, what were the what were the bounds in terms of timing, you know, for the, for the the arts and culture program? So we divided it between uh, two portions. One was the cultural Olympiad that took place a full year before the games. We actually announced it the day the the year before the games uh, um, to the day. And then the period of time uh, during the course of the games, we call the Olympic Arts Festival. We also made a very, very important point, Christian, that we weren't going to make any separation between the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games, partly because I have a personal belief, but that belief was shared with the cultural committee that I had that I, I, don't, uh, I don't believe in handicap artists. There may be artists who happen to live with a handicap. There are not handicapped artists. So Itzhak Perlman, who was one of our guests, who we had here, or Dale Chihuly, who was one of our, our guests, uh, Evelyn Glennie, the, the deaf vibraphonist and percussionist, who was one of our guests with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Um, 
all were gifted artists in their own right. They just happened to live with a handicap. So we made sure that our Olympic Arts Festival and our Cultural Olympiad bridged, importantly, both the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Well, I thank you very much for bringing that up. And of course, several of our uh, listeners or our participants, previous guests have have mentioned the opening ceremony where uh, Itzhak Perlman and Sting performed Fragile uh, as being one of the highlights of, of, the, of their games experience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the scope of the uh, Cultural Olympiad, you know, the, the number of artists, the kinds of um, uh, participants in the, in, the, in the Cultural Olympiad? So it, it was uh, it was wide ranging. There were about uh, 60 signature events, uh, major artists performed. And I think singularly, one of the things that defined our games was the commissioning of new work. And when we commissioned new work, we knew that that would be part of a cultural legacy and that that commissioning would merge sport and art, for example. I commissioned the legendary African-American dance company, Alvin Ailey, uh, to do a work choreographed by its artistic director at the, at the time, Judith Jamison, that was based upon the life of Florence Griffith Joyner. It was called Here Now. Um, that became a very, very important moment for us because it was a perfect example to have culture uh, integrate with sport. We commissioned the modern dance company Palabalus to do a work called the Brass Ring, um, and uh, and and once again it was a merger of sport and art in a, in a in a very important way. And to this day, whenever one of those works is performed, it carries with it um, a signature piece that says that this was commissioned as part of the cultural legacy of the two thousand two. Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games. I seem to remember on a couple of the podcasts that we've done, people have actually had a poster on the wall behind them with five artistic performers forming the rings out of their bodies. You know, they, 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 indeed, they, uh, indeed. they made the rings out of the, the loops and they still have these posters on their wall. 18 years later. Uh, so that poster that you mentioned was of the dance company Palabalus, and we did two versions of it. One where the dancers were in uh, in body suits uh, with the color of the Olympic rings. And another we did where the dancers were in body suits, but it was, uh, it was a nude color um, as a tribute to the ancient games where the historians tell us that athletes frequently uh, participated in the, in the games uh, naked. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the collaboration with the International Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee on the development of the Cultural Olympiad? Were there, were there certain elements where, you know, they were kind of questioning, or oh, is this is really where you want to go? Or they were generally, were they generally quite supportive of the work that you were doing? And, uh, you know, just what was the collaboration like with with uh, the event owner, the IOC. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, excellent question. Um, I thought the collaboration was terrific. Um, at, at the time, the chairman of the Cultural uh, Commission of the IOC was Chairman He from, from China. He welcomed my ideas. Uh, he knew an extraordinary amount about the history of Utah. 
and uh, and 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 he also recognized uh, the importance of indigenous peoples. So when I went there uh, in multiple sessions to get the various kinds of approvals, um, the approvals to use the colored rings for the cultural Olympiad, the approvals for the programming and the, and the like. Uh, one of the large approvals was my insistence that uh, IOC members paid for cultural tickets. Um, my colleague, Jeffrey Babcock, who was the artistic director of the Atlanta Games in 1996, told me, Ray, the biggest mistake I made was I made large blocks of tickets available to IOC members and they went unused. Um, we sold 98% of our tickets to our cultural games here. So we never had that problem, but I was grateful, of course, for, for, for the advice. Um, so uh, I would say that the IOC was very, very supportive. Um, I was also encouraged that they were very interested that we would have a transfer of knowledge about our cultural program so that other organizations coming after us uh, would have a roadmap, if you would. Now, that's not to say that there weren't any uh, other great games. Um, there weren't any games in the modern era that were self-funded. Most were funded by the governments that hosted the games. Um, but I was uh, very pleased to go to Sydney, for example, uh, where I uh, hosted uh, Bob and uh, Kathy Garth. Uh, Bob was the, uh, the chairman of the uh, Salt Lake Olympic Committee, who uh, sadly uh, passed away on March 29th of COVID-19. It, it was a big loss for us, but he was a huge champion of the role that the arts should, should play. And Sydney had a terrific Olympic Games. Um, other communities, it felt more like an afterthought. And I give great tribute to Fraser and Mitt and the board and others to say, no, um, arts and culture is going to be an integral part of our games here in Utah. Well, and it certainly was. And I remember several iconic things. And one of those was hanging in the uh, Utah Symphony lobby. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that particular piece that was hanging there. Yeah, f f thank you again. Um, it's one of our cultural legacies for the games. So uh, it was a monumental sculpture called Olympic Tower. Um, I commissioned it um, as a temporary exhibit in a Bravenel Hall. And uh, Dale Chihuly was a remarkable artist uh, to, to work with, uh, known for his large scale glass works. Um, and in the case of the temporary exhibit, there was the sun, there was the moon, there was the Olympic Tower, and we had a whole exhibition in what was then called the Salt Lake um, Art Gallery. After the games, very shortly after the games, um, a group of cultural leaders came to me and said, we need to raise the money to keep it. Among them was Greta and Chase Peterson. Um, Greta... Um, uh, Chase is the former uh, uh, president of the University of Utah. Greta was involved in the Tatter Humanity series there. And so um, I got on the phone with uh, with Chihuly, 
who we also commissioned to do a Steinway piano in his quintessential Chihuly colors. And uh, we raised enough money so that today that sits as one of the few, I would argue, legacies of, uh, of, of, of our games. So anytime um, pre-COVID, when you're able to go into uh, a Bravenel Hall, you're greeted by that um, by that sculpture, which is a reminder, according to D- Dale Chihuly, uh, of wonder. That was his only interest, Christian. It didn't matter to him whether or not people liked the work or disliked the work. What was important is that people would say, aha. Well, they certainly did say, aha, I was one of them. I remember going there and seeing it and I was uh, I was blown away by it. You've mentioned several pieces and you've mentioned uh, performances that stand today as a legacy of the of the Salt Lake 2002 games. And when we think of legacy, we we typically think of those tangible things that you can see or you can watch. But uh, beyond the tangible things, in your view, what were some of the intangible legacies of the arts and culture program that you shepherded in Salt Lake City? One of the things I love about the arts is that they're ephemeral. As you know, from your own songwriting and from your own performing, um, these performances last just a brief period of time and then they're gone. So being in the presence of that world gathering and seeing the response of audiences to gifted artists um, was very, very important to me. I think it was meaningful. We also did a series of commissioned essays. So those essays live on because we thought the essays might be a good opportunity for us to engage the media, which in some cases were coming to Utah thinking that they were going to be met by polygamists and cowboys and Indians. So, for example, um, we commissioned the legendary cowboy poet Waddy Mitchell. Um, And he wrote a poem called That No Quit Attitude. And it was a play on the swifter, higher, stronger motto of the Olympic Games. And uh, and it was it was wonderful when you, uh, you know, suggested what might be a musical memory for me. It was a it was a, a poetry memory. Um, and uh, if if you could indulge me, there's just one stanza, and you could edit it out if if you need to. But I thought that this was uh, remarkable. It comes from that no quit attitude that we commissioned by Wadi Mitchell. And since mankind started walking, it's been swifter, higher, stronger, as if pushed by some deep need to keep their limits unconfined almost thriving, always striving for things bigger, better, longer, in some unrelenting pursuit of perfection redefined. That's the Olympic Games, even though we're in a pause. We are in a pause, uh, but I really appreciate you sharing that verse. Um, It actually made the hairs on my arms raise when you read it. I really appreciate that. There's a lot of emotion packed into that and a lot of passion. But I do want to ask, um, you talked about music 
you mentioned that you were a classically trained musician. You came from that background. What was the instrument that you played? A clarinet. Um, so I was trained as a clarinetist. And early enough in my career, I recognized I didn't have what it took to be an artist performing on the stage, but I did have a pretty good knack of bringing audiences into those concert halls. So in New York, I had the, the great opportunity to be the general manager of the American Symphony Orchestra in Carnegie Hall. And I was also the head of performing arts of a remarkable community organization, international community organization in New York City called the 92nd Street Y. I'm glad that you're able to find something that was uh, closely aligned with a passion, uh, music, and you're able to stay in this business. And uh, you've you've done tremendous work from everything that I remember from the Salt Lake 2002 games. I really appreciate that. Now, you sent through a lot of materials, and clearly you've given this podcast a lot of thought, which I appreciate very, very much. And before we get to kind of our final wrap-up segment here, I want to make sure that I give you time to share any other stories that we haven't touched on. Um, they could be with respect to the, the preparation of the games, or they could be uh, with respect to the, the performances that, that really moved you, or it could be um, things that you did after the games were over. No, th thanks very much. I guess a couple of things come to mind. So during the games, if you had a cultural ticket, that was your free transportation to get you showed your ticket, you got on tracks, there was no fee, and that idea was ahead of its time. As a matter of fact, it's being debated today in Salt Lake. So I think when we talk about the Olympics and our game's impact on the Olympics, um, that's, an, that's an important role. And to think that it was culture that led to that um, gives me great pride. I think, um, secondly, I have a, a memory uh, with respect to the heritage uh, of, of America and the American West of putting together uh, what I call an Olympic command performance rodeo. And this was a rodeo that challenged the American uh, Cowboys to the Canadian Cowboys. Calgary Stampede, for example, many famous uh, rodeos. And we partnered with the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association down in Colorado Springs. Uh, this was controversial. Um, the organization PETA uh, protested in front of my house here. They blew up a big rat in the IOC, um, in our headquarters uh, in downtown. They chained themselves to the IOC fence in Lausanne, Switzerland, and it put an awful lot of pressure on, uh, on, on Mitt Romney, for one, on Rocky Anderson, who was the mayor at, at the time. So I was called to this big meeting. Um, Rocky, who's a very dear friend of mine, Rocky called Mitt and says, Ray has this one wrong. You've got to cancel the Olymp you've got to cancel the rodeo. Mitt calls me into his office. He says, You got to cancel the rodeo. I said, I, I can't cancel the rodeo. 
Um, I, I mean, Anna Kisselgoff, the great dance critic of the New York Times, has written about the rodeo as an art form. I said, you have to do me a favor. Let's get Lane Beatty on the phone. He was the Olympic officer at the time. And I said, let's at least see what Lane has to say. Um, and so we got Lane on the, on the phone and he says, you know, I need to talk to the governor about this. Long story short, uh, the governor tells Mitt, because I'm in his office and I could hear it over the speakerphone. Um, governor Mike Levitt says, Mitt, don't you dare associate me with a canceled rodeo in Utah. Long story short, the rodeo goes through. If there was any bloodshed, Christian, at the rodeo, it was only the blood of cowboys. It wasn't the blood of, uh, of, of animals. And we packed three performances of that rodeo up in Farmington in, in, in Davis County. So that's a memory for me that's important because it talks about holding true to uh to to an idea and not be apologetic um especially in the environment and we're living in today um without having necessarily to be apologetic um about an important uh moment in cultural history well thank you very much ray for sharing that story I'm glad to hear that the rodeo ended up working out. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Olympic Games is uh, for whatever reason, it allows people to do some impossible things if they work together to achieve them. So thank you very much for sharing that. And I know we've kind of deconstructed my final segment as we, as I typically do, which is totally fine. We've talked about that poetry, that beautiful poetry is a musical selection. And when it comes to arts and culture, there can be culinary aspects of culture as well. Um, were there culinary aspects incorporated into the arts and culture program? And then I'll kind of segue that into my restaurant question for you, you the, the favorite place that you like to go to when you work there at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Oh, ter ter terrific. There was indeed um, a very important uh, culinary celebration. Um, it was an entire program we call the Art of the Table. We celebrated 50 chefs in 13 nights. Um, I'll share with you the menus. They were extraordinary. These were young chefs, not even known at the time, chefs like Marcus Samuelson and others. And it fell to me, since we had three chefs a night for a single dinner, that dinner was tied to a cultural experience. So you might have this extraordinary dinner with three chefs followed by a performance of, uh, of Itzhak Perlman with the Utah Symphony, for example. And it fell to me to tell Marcus Samuelson, I'm sorry, you only have the appetizer today, not, not the entree. Th those were extraordinary. But one of the extraordinary moments in terms of the daily dining was a lovely restaurant that is um, that is now owned by Walter uh, on Third West. It was called the Metropolitan um, at the time. And um, I knew Walter from my days in, in New York, where he was the maitre d' of a remarkable restaurant around the corner from Carnegie Hall called Castellanos. 
And uh, so at the Metropolitan, we're dining there one night with myself, um, with a funder. We were always trying to raise money um, with Richard Stoltzman, the um, remarkable clarinetist uh, from New York and Dale Chihuly. And we're looking at the menu and Chihuly, and this is a beautiful menu, by the way, Um, gorgeous food, well-prepared. It was really the art of the table. And Chihuly looks at the menu and he says, but there's no color in the menu. So he dips his hand, huge hand, he dips his hand in his wine glass and he sprinkles the menu and in his characteristic huge signature, writes Chihuly and presents these menus to all of the servers in the restaurant. Wow, that's an incredible, incredible thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I would, I would, if I was one of those servers, I would have been stunned. Oh, wow. the, the, the servers were stunned. I mean, they knew who he was. So, you know, I think they admired the fact that, you know, he was coming to the restaurant. They knew who Richard Stoltzman was. He was performing the next night with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Um, and, um, and, and he was so generous of spirit and irreverent at the same time. We were at a fine restaurant. Um, Etiquette was the um, moment of the day. And and yet, um, he took a fine glass of wine, he dipped his fingers in it, and he turned a menu into a piece of art. Wow. I, I, I bet if someone tried to sell that menu these days, they'd fetch a fine money. <laughs> I, I, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could have faded and just looks a little blotched. I, I don't know today. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I have to say this conversation for me has been absolutely fascinating, Ray. It's been great to get to know you and to, to learn more about the cultural Olympiad and the, and the, and all the wonderful work that you've done there. You shared so many great memories and stories today. But if you had to choose something that was a kind of the a goosebump moment, as we say, for our podcast, uh, what would it be? I, I, I'd have to say that, um, that with this Chihuly Olympic Tower, in front of that tower, I also asked Steinway Piano to, um, to, to provide me with a group of about 12 very gifted Steinway instruments, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue Piano, um, the, the last instrument that uh, Vladimir Horowitz played in Russia and the like. And we set up a gallery of these instruments in and around his uh, sculpture, and we opened the lobby up to the public 24 hours for anybody to come and play any of these restaurants. So for me, one of the goosebumps, uh, goosebump moments was this notion that, um, you know, since the 1960s, when we've been fighting for access to the arts and in one fell swoop, we provided access to anybody, whether they were a professional pianist or wanted just simply to play chopsticks on a gifted instrument. That was extraordinary. But at the same time, um, 
we also, as, as part of our signature events, um, had a copy of the Declaration of Independence, America's birth document. It seemed to me it would be appropriate for hosting the games. Um, this was owned by Norman Lear. He came for the games. We did a remarkable series of programs. Uh, it was presented at the Capitol every day. Um, and then we did a tour of this from the Ronald Reagan Library um, into uh, our games and then onto the Jefferson Memorial into Philadelphia. We did a reading of celebrity, uh, celebrity artists as well. But one of the remarkable moments was to see laying on his back, Norman Lear, the icon of people for the American way, the liberal icon next to Al Mansell, who was the conservative president of the Utah Senate both lying on their back, looking up at this Chihuly statue, saying, guess what? Wow. Well, wow's an appropriate word to kind of finish us up here. Ray, thank you. I really appreciate you taking time and sharing all of these wonderful stories. I have to ask if people want to learn more about the really interesting projects that you're working on these days, or they want to reconnect with you and share memories of the Salt Lake 2002 games, What's the best way for them to contact you? So um, email, I guess, would be the best way. It's uh, grantrtg at gmail.com. Um, that'd be a, a, a great place. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook and the other the social media uh, outlets as, as well. And um, and I follow regularly this group that we have of alumni um, that your podcast um, you know regularly appears on. So uh, just drop me a note there, and I'll, I'll be happy to get together um, at the Olympic um, Library in Lausanne is all of our records. One of the things we did, uh, it was a Fraser Bullock idea that there needed to be an important transfer of knowledge. So uh, they have all of, uh, of our, our records from the early bid books to the presentations we made to the IOC and, and the like. Um, and there, was, there were several articles that I wrote on the role of Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the Modern Games, and, uh, and his role in, um, in, in the arts uh, that are available through the Olympic Museum website, too. All right. Fantastic. Ray, thank you so much for your contribution, your work, and also your participation in our humble little podcast today. We really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again next week. Ray, again, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.